0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. When people compliment me on hardcore data science at Strata plus Hadoop World, I always give credit to my co-organizer and my guest today, Ben Recht. He's a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley, and a member of the famed AMP lab. On today's episode, we'll talk about his many interests, including optimization, compressed sensing, statistics, and machine learning pipelines. In particular, we'll do a deep dive into Keystone ML. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the data show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Ben. So first off, let's start with uh, your background. So were you a CS person from the get-go as an undergrad? Yeah,
1: I still don't think I'm a CS person yet. <laughs> I'm not sure how I get into the club. Now as an undergraduate, I did math. math yeah. Yeah, did yeah, yes. uh, You strike
0: me actually as a more on the math side of CS, and then uh, in grad school, uh, you were part of the media lab, right? That's right. Yeah. And uh, what were you studying? Was it optimization? Yeah, you know, I actually I went to the media lab because I thought I was going to do
1: computer music, but that didn't really pan out. Uh, (laughs) It turned out that I like computers and I like music, but I like to keep them a little bit separate. So the research area wasn't really ideal. So I kind of fell into machine learning. I, got, I took a class um, with Tommy Poggio. Oh, he yeah. actually, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he had, uh, and um, it was co-taught by a bunch of his students who were just uh, really engaging and, and brilliant. It's like who, the, the year I took it was with uh, Rifkin, who is now a, a big shot at Google. Uh, there's um, Sasha Rocklin, who is kind of one of the like, best known theory, uh, young guys who does theory of machine learning. This guy, Cheyenne Mukherjee, He's also a great statistician. He's at Duke. So he's like, just oh, had this man, great group of guys. And, uh, uh it was kind of, a, well, they were like the, the TAs. I mean, they taught me everything I know. And I think the reason I got into it is because like I, um, I took that class and they, Tommy had always been kind of interested in teaching these classes from a more mathematical perspective. And so like we kind of, they did the class around this paper that Steve Smale wrote. Oh, really? So yeah, it's really actually highly recommended to our math friends out there. If you want to, the, the, the five people who do mathematics and want to learn what more about the, grammar.
0: what's the topic of the paper it's called the mathematical
1: foundations of learning. It's a great paper. Uh, it's with Felipe Cooker That's Steve Smale, man. Steve Smale and Felipe Cooker man. It's, it's really nice. And you know, I think, I don't think there's anything in that paper that's at the time even was new. I think like most machine learning people who did theory of machine learning would know everything that was in there. Um, but I think for me coming from kind of the university of Chicago, kind of just knowing a lot of math, but not really a lot of the you know, applied math. Um, it was like, they did everything in terms of
0: uh, just objects I was familiar with. And Tom, Tom, Tommy Poggio, did he do some of these uh, universal approximation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah back I, in the 90s. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. At the end of the day, it's like a stone Weierstrass CRM kind of argument. Exactly. <laughs> My yeah. God, man. I can't I believe man. I remember this stuff.
1: No, oh, exactly. Right. And so I think that's funny. like for our math guys. I mean, there is that mathematical component, but then, you know, the rest, I kind of went from there. Um,
0: yeah. So, and, and, uh, your bread and butter, uh, has become optimization in many ways, right? Yes. So yes. that's something that was also grad school or after?
1: No, that was definitely, that was in grad school. Um, I ended up spending a lot of time, um, at, you know, I was, I was doing my PhD at the media lab. I spent a lot of my time at LIDS, the laboratory for information decision systems basically like the anti media lab. They were, but they actually always made fun of us. Uh, but really smart people over there. And, um, so I hung out with a lot of the guys over there. MIT is very strong in optimization. That kind of just uh, pulled me in. I see. I yeah. see.
0: And, uh, so when did you start getting interested in compressive sensing? Um, that was as a postdoc and it was kind of a weird way.
1: It was a weird way into the whole area. I mean, I had a, uh, uh, Okay, I, I can tell you the story. This is kind of one of these funny, funny, yeah. stupid stories, but I actually remember very clearly where this whole all got started. So, uh, basically, for a, for a long time, so the compressed sensing. Let's start there. Compressed sensing. What is it for people who maybe don't know? Um, it's this. It's this idea that you can capture images, either medical images or satellite images or astronomical images, with much fewer measurements than um, like by rastering all the pixels. So, what we do now is we take a picture. And then we would store it as like a JPEG. And so the JPEG is going to be much smaller than the actual raw data that you would take on your camera. Uh, and compressed sensing is saying, well, you can actually take far fewer measurements knowing that you're going to be in this compressed format later. So weirdly there was, it, there was this, um, the mathematical foundations of that stuff, um, connects back to these things that people were doing in control theory in the eighties when they wanted to build simple controllers. And so there's this like this nice parallel, even though it's not obvious to a non-expert for all the control theory people, it was quite clear that the techniques that they were doing in this compressed sensing space were very similar to the kind of techniques that people have been doing in control theory. albeit in a very, very different context. And so I was at a meeting at the IMA, which is a uh, wonderful math Institute in, uh, at the university of Minnesota, Minneapolis. Yeah. Minneapolis. Yeah. Man. And it's, um, so the, the funny thing about the IMA is, um, you know, when they, when they assign people get workshops and, um, uh, when you get lucky, you get a workshop in may and it's just spectacular. Uh, this workshop was in January and it was a minus <laughs> 10. It was minus really it was very, very cold. So you, we didn't really go out and explore very much. So we actually like the closest restaurant to the IMA was this really bad Chinese restaurant. And so I went to dinner with Pablo Perillo, who happened to be there at the time. And we, um, we just were asking each other, why has nobody made this connection that this compressed sensing stuff is the same as this, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, some, this thing called the trace norm heuristic that people had been doing in control theory. Why has nobody really made that connection? We didn't really know. We spent the week working on it. We, um, also roped in our colleague, Marian Fassel, who was also there at the time. And at the end of that, we had a draft, uh, kind of the first kind of like
0: core. So, were, um, so in, in essence, were you just, were you guys just giving alternative proofs?
1: So it, it really was the big idea was that, uh, compressed sensing is at its base is concerned with something called sparsity. It's the idea that I could represent an image as a sum of a few simple building blocks. Um, there's like a kind of analog version of sparsity, which is called rank. And rank is going to actually doesn't really work for images. Rank is really something more about like data matrices. So like it would be the idea that if I wanted to run PCA, I run PCA because I believed in somehow deep down that, um, that my, feature, my um, data was low rank. I could describe every item in my data set as a combination of a few simple prototypes. Um, so this is why we run principal component analysis. And so the idea is, can you do something like principal component analysis with a lot of missing data? And it turns out you could take the techniques from compressed sensing, and then you have to change some things. You have to change some things to convert yourself into this more um, this land of matrices rather than this land of vectors. But once you made those transformations, there was a very clear correspondence between the tools developed in compressed sensing and the tools you would use for these kinds of techniques with matrices. And that's kind of where all of this stuff on matrix completion and related areas, kind of that, that's really what came out of that first paper.
0: And by the way, to the listeners out there, what Ben just described is a blog post that he owes me. Oh, that's true. That he hasn't written, but uh, I've seen drafts of it, but uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> we should just take the transcript here and I'll embellish the transcript. Be um, but then actually beyond that, you, you worked on compressed sensing for a while, right? Didn't you have a paper with one of the founders of the area? That's right. I'm, um,
1: at Caltech, uh, when I was there, Emmanuel Candès was still there. And so we ended up writing a fall a, a paper on this original work. Um with, with Pablo and Marianne, kind of in a like, uh, more realistic setting. And then, um, yeah, I, 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 st- I mean, there's still people in the group working on that stuff today. It's kind of had a lot of legs. Right, right, right. Know?
0: And then, okay. So then moving, uh, moving forward a little bit, uh, you continue uh, in Berkeley. You continue to work with many, many different, uh, uh people in the university, primarily using your skills and optimization, is that correct?
1: Yeah, i i I've always liked to, uh, i always like to I always like to collaborate. That's something I've liked since uh, uh, I kind of got into this in graduate school. I think that's one of the things that the the media lab did really well was had these kind of very diverse, multidisciplinary collaborations. So I kind of got a taste for it. I've been into that ever since. So um So, yeah, so
0: I mean, uh, so the amp lab itself is structured that way in the sense that you've got people from your background, machine learning. Systems databases, but then you you yourself also work with people in other fields like robotics, right?
1: Not so much in robotics, but definitely in like in uh, working with people who work on microscopy, on astronomy, okay. on imaging. Um, there's a great, I mean, there, uh, robotics would be good though. That would be something I should. We have really good, great robotics uh, program here, so I should take advantage of that.
0: Um, so we had a conversation at the last Amp Lab retreat that I just wanted you to. Uh, repeat here, and maybe it'll be impossible to repeat without dishwash. Um This notion of, uh, I was telling you, at the end of the day, everything is stochastic gradient descent. And you said, well, no, you should also think uh, you should also start uh, uh, revisiting linear programming. So maybe you can elaborate on that. Uh,
1: I think I think this was kind of just remarking on our, uh, the bizarre short term memory of uh, of uh, academic research. Um, I feel like that. So it's we had a very funny trajectory. I mean, I, um, where back in the eighties um, people invented something called they called it back propagation. It was really something called stochastic gradient descent, which had been invented. Um, well, see, it's, it's hard to say this algorithm has been invented four or five times. It was, uh, initially, initially it was due to some guys named Robbins and Monroe. I think the earliest people. Right. That was it. like
0: 1951 or 1951.
1: Yeah, 51. And then it was invented again by the people who were doing adaptive filtering. And they kind of did that in the late sixties, early seventies. This was kind of like doing trying to do, um, filter design kind of like in real time. Um, then it was reinvented in the context of neural networks, uh, in the eighties by Dave Rumelhart. And then kind of, it kind of had a heyday after that. Um, and then it lost popularity for many years. Uh, in particular in the nineties, people started getting into linear programming techniques. Um, the most famous one being the support vector machine. Um, And so there, the idea would be that if you just called the linear program solver, you would get an an answer, it would be more robust, you get it faster, you can interpret what it was saying, it had all sorts of kind of sensitivity analysis that you would get for free. So people really kind of just stopped doing SGD altogether. And then bizarrely, in about 2005, people discovered that actually, you could use stochastic gradient descent to solve the support vector machine. And that that worked really well. Now, I say they discovered this, but when you look at it, it's the algorithm that comes out has a different name. It's called the Perceptron. So that was actually, I mean, people knew that in the 60s as well. So it's this very funny thing. I think because PhDs are five years and because professors don't pay enough attention to their students, we just get into these cycles of reinventing the wheel every five years or so.
0: So you're predicting at some point linear, the linear programming te- techniques will have another renaissance. Has to, right? Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the
1: question is: The question is, is it going to be in 2016 or 2020? You just got time it right. Time it right.
0: You just have to, you just have to find another set of problems and reinvent it again. <laughs> um, so, a paper that you wrote with uh, a mutual friend of ours, Chris Ray, as, re, as uh, uh, received uh, some uh, attention recently. At the Hogwild paper. Mm. Um, Primarily because I think some people in deep learning are using it, right? So maybe you can describe a little bit about what Hogwild is. And by yeah. the way, uh, for the listeners out there, I am going to let Ben spell out Hogwild in uh, in a case sensitive way.
1: In case sensitive way, well, it's it's the, the secret is that it is you know capital H, and then everything else is lowercase. But you write it in small caps. That's really <laughs> important. And then you have to have an exclamation point on the end. That's very important, you know, just for. And then uh, it was covered uh, by wire. Then they got it right. They got it right. Well, they didn't do the small caps. They decided to do all caps. But I'm I'm okay with that. That's better than lowercase. So, so anyway, kind of... Hogwild. What's Hogwild? Hog-Wild. <laughs> that, so I think the important thing here, Ben, is that Hogwild is a state of mind, not really an <laughs> algorithm. That's really the important thing here. Um, I think the, the 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 idea was initially for just stochastic gradient descent. And um, the main, the main, everybody had been trying to come up with ways to paralyze stochastic gradient descent because, you know, you have, you're running on these multi-core machines, using one thread is super wasteful. Um, and so, the main idea of Hogwild initially was what you could just do is have all of your cores running stochastic gradient descent at the same time, writing to the same shared memory and not locking the shared memory. So these guys, they'd be overriding each other's work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then the, you have all sorts of weird behavior collisions and the updates exactly. get all out of sync, right? Exactly. So everything out of sync is kind of uh, a... That's, that's why it's hog wild. That's why it's hog
1: wild. You're going hog wild on the memory. And yeah. why should something that, like that work? The key thing here is there, there are two things that make that work. First of all, it's a randomized algorithm. So we're, we're kind of already banking on the fact that we're not actually running you know, the stochastic and stochastic gradient descent. It means you're already not running exactly what you want. You want to run gradient descent, you're running a noisy gradient. So you already have noise and maybe adding a little bit no- more noise might not hurt. That's definitely one thing that's true. And the second thing that's true is a lot of these updates that are occurring, even though they look like they should be conflicting with each other, they don't conflict. We have very sparse updates. You end up actually most of the time operating on independent parts of, um, of the memory. So you don't, so if you have a lot of sparsity, you have a little bit of this randomness, um, this algorithm just works. Um, we had a horrible proof that this works in the appendix of that paper. That's, that's disgusting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend anybody read that. Um, but in practice it works really well and it works in places it really shouldn't. It seems like anytime you have these. So so, updates, so
0: when you say in practice, so empirically it seems to work, but, yeah. but there's no, Theoretical. Oh no, we have theory. We have theory. I'm just saying, don't
1: read it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think that there, there have been a few papers since that have actually done a much nicer, more compact job of, of, of understanding why that works.
0: And I imagine your the, your implementation is on a single machine, but but the proof. It doesn't matter. If it's it a, doesn't it's matter. It's it's for a
1: shared memory model. So yeah. if you wanted to do it on one of these multiple machine things, you would have to do something where you had a some reasonable shared memory that you could access on with multiple machines. So um, one popular idea that I think a lot of people looking at is this, uh, something called a parameter server. All oh, um, right, right. That's something you could do. This um, is Alex Mola? Yes, amongst others. I, 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 um, and I th- I, so there's lots of things in that space that would be. Uh, and
0: so. Uh, uh, I guess recently some people in the deep learning community uh, came across your paper and uh, started using it, right? I think that's why uh, it was the subject of this Wired article. So
1: certainly um, the first deep learning folks who I think it, like publicly announced that they were using this were, was the Google Brain folks. Oh, okay. Um, they announced that. I, I was at the conference where uh, um, some of those guys were talking and I, it was an ICML and it must've been 2012, 2012, ICML 2012. So they definitely, they, they were definitely using this at, um, in the, the kind of the early Google brain work. Um, and then there was another group at Microsoft that kind of even took it, uh, took it a step further working on a, um, distributed system and uh, this project Adam. So they, they also did, um, end up incorporating
0: it. Cool. And so, most recently, um, at least in your work in Amplab, you've been leading a project on machine learning pipelines, right? So tell us a little bit about how that project started. What inspired that project?
1: I mean, honestly, what initially inspired this project was... Um, so before I was at, at uh, uh, HAL, I was at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I w- had become a pretty devoted fan of the, of the Wisconsin Badgers football team. And, uh, you know, I got to, I got to witness, you know, Russell Wilson kind of transferring in and lighting up the big 10 for a year. It was very exciting. And, uh, so with my friend, Chris Ray, who we kind of mentioned earlier, we kind of got into this idea that we should, it was kind of a random thing, but someone was interested in us doing some kind of video analysis. We weren't really into the videos they were presenting us. We were like, you know what we should really do. We should analyze football videos. We should take these like coaches tape and like come up with some way of doing the analytics there. And so it started off as just like a project over Christmas break. And then lots of people started getting involved and excited about it. We had a bunch of students, we had these little meeting groups on it. And so we, I I basically got into a very, very applied project. And in doing so, I learned a lot about computer vision. um, And I learned a lot about um, just the different techniques that go into making a computer vision system work. And what was immediately obvious was that computer vision, um, even though it used tons of machine learning really was not doing any of the things that were prescribed by machine learning theory. Machine learning theory and statistics, basically you tell me, you give me a model, and then maybe I will run something like a support vector machine and we'll call it a day. You have one step. right? right, and, and, that's, right. and that's what we spend all of our time teaching our students. Here's some data, here are your features, fit your model, and then I'll prove some stuff about that. Uh, but just getting those features is this really laborious process. Try to figure out what the right features are and then plugging all these different components together becomes, this, the, you know, you, you end up having to do a lot of software engineering. You end up having to piece together lots of recipes. You have to do this kind of stage wise composition and design. And so we actually look at what you have to do to make something work. It's not just fit a support vector machine. It's not just run PCA. It's composing these things all together. And what became immediately clear is that we didn't really have any software that let us do this. And we didn't really have any theoretical understanding of how to do this. And, uh, I just became interested in the question of how can we actually understand modularity and kind of um, composability of these kind of statistical systems.
0: So, in know? many ways, so I guess in many ways, what you're describing is you're trying to automate the series of steps from raw data into the whatever prediction. So, not automate. I think that's really important. I,
1: I don't th- I, I'm not interested in automation. I think there are people who. Probably would be, but, and I don't think that, I think that is an interesting question, how to automate, but I feel like we're not, before we can get to automate, we have to be able to understand if I just tell you, I do task A, I do task B, I do task C, I fit an SVM. How can I understand what that's going to do? Can you come back to me and say, yes, that's going to behave reasonably on new data. Can you come back to me and say, uh, yes, I'm highly confident of the predictions that the system is making. So that's, I think, the kind of thing that we
0: just don't know how to answer. Oh, that. I see. So I see. All right, right, right. Because uh, you know, I mean, so in in many ways, so for example, in the deep learning world, right? So you've got you start with the raw data, and you get you proceed to generate higher level feature representations across a series of steps, and then and then you've got your prediction at the end, and then I guess you just start applying it to new data, and then if you're satisfied with the results, you call it a day. Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, I think deep, deep learning is a good. I mean, it's certainly a way to solve this problem. I mean, deep learning is, I think actually after at least I'm not sure everybody who's in the field, but there's a large subset of the guys who, who do this. Um, I would call this the, the lacuna school because this basically also is how Jan would talk about it when you, when you speak with him, they are interested in this end to end problem. And rather than, um, where, whereas a, a lot of people, like, like a, the majority of papers in machine learning, uh, let's say before the deep learning resurgence, the majority of the papers in machine learning would take a lot of boxes off the shelf and put them together. In deep learning, you just have these little, you have these boxes that you're handed. You can chain them together however you want. But once I've chained them together, I know how to at least do fitting. Right. And that's using stochastic gradient descent. Now, after that, kind of all bets are off. Is this going to be good? Is this going to generalize? Is this going I mean, from a theoretical oh, perspective, I, I there's see. not yeah, much yeah, to yeah. say.
0: Because you, yeah, actually, in your talk I, Strata last year. I guess you alluded to this, but you framed it in a different way. You you talked about uh, error bounds. That's another thing that perhaps we'd be interested in. Yeah. Right. So in yeah. other words, if you have a uh, if if you have a clear understanding of your pipeline, you'll get to the point where maybe you can start the, uh, estimating error bounds. Yeah. I see.
1: And I, I think I think that's important. I mean, I think it, if we're going to put these kind of systems in, kind of you know, if we want to put machine learning systems in mission critical places, uh, we would like to have some sort of guarantees on what they're gonna do. I see. I I I really feel like that's
0: right, right, right. Like like
1: self-driving cars and things sure. like that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Smart grid, internet so, things. Saw, I mean if we're gonna put machine learning as part of the feedback loop, we really should
0: so the to to the listeners out there, actually what Ben is describing uh, it's much more concrete now. They, they have a very preliminary version of this, uh, pipeline framework. First of all, uh, the AMP Lab actually, uh, worked closely with the folks in the Apache Spark community, uh, particularly the f- people at Databricks to introduce the notion of pipelines in, uh, uh, current versions of Apache Spark. But then since then, Ben and, uh, people in AMP Lab have, uh, have taken it a step further in many ways using this new framework called Keystone ML. Yeah. So maybe Ben, you can describe what is the current state of Keystone ML. Absolutely.
1: So Keystone ML is a step towards solving this problem. It's not the end. We're not there yet. And we've kind of just have our, I'm even hesitant to call it an alpha release, but it's an alpha release It's out in the world of the initial uh, Keystone software. So what Keystone ML does is it's a system. It sits inside of uh, um, Apache Spark. It allows you to plug together components um, and chain them together however you, you like. We have a bunch of examples, both in, um, in, in computer vision and in text and in, um, speech. In speech. Uh, do we have something in speech? Oh, we have something very basic in speech. That's something we're hoping to do a little bit more on and, and also kind of in some other kinds of unstructured data we have. And there is really just a framework to try to test out some of these ideas. It's really something that says, look, if you have these things sitting on your shelf, here's something that allows you to stitch them together. If you want to run some C code, and then that's going to call into some other kind of uh, executable, here's a way to kind of chain those things together. Here's a simple way to kind of plug, pull them out, try out a different one. So So, thing- so for ahead.
0: example, for Vision, you have the basic building blocks to do what? Like classify?
1: Yeah. I mean, for, for vision right now, we have your basic, I mean, I think, um, my colleagues who do, um, computer vision now probably don't care anymore, but this would be, we have the building blocks to do computer vision from the way they were doing it two years ago. Now you go to CBPR, all there is, is deep learning. So computer vision is now doing something else, but which is fine. Uh, but you know, for a lot of tasks, you don't actually need to do deep learning. There are plenty of things like pedestrian detection, um, Simple tasks along those lines, where I mean, you 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 know, something simpler works, which is fine. So we have kind of the tools for the old school. Let's call it that way, very old school computer vision.
0: But the point the point of the the point of these tools is not necessarily to uh, uh, do something cutting edge in computer vision, but to understand how these how how these machine learning pipelines work.
1: Yeah, that's the the research question: is how do we understand how to do those machine that do these things stick together. I think from the for, for uh, folks who might be interested in using it, it is also true that you know it, it's fairly easy to get one of these pipelines up and running. And so, you know, you could spend time with your GPU cluster training something. But maybe before you made that investment, you could just try this if you were interested in computer vision. I think that's totally fine. Yeah, and,
0: and uh, one of one of the advantages of Spark is it scales out, and I think your training time is much much faster. I
1: yeah, I, I, we're, we're, we have um, the students on this project are. are really wizards. I mean, we've got some, it's very fast training time. Uh, it seems to scale really nicely. It's a great, it's a great work by those guys. Um,
0: so, so right now you have the components to do, uh, things in with text images and, and, and speech, but, uh, what if I have a different type of source data, how easy would it be for someone to go into Keystone? And I guess they would have to build some primitives for their data set, right?
1: Yeah. And I'm hoping that it's going to be, I'm hope we're, we're going to find out. I mean, there are lots of things that we're w- hoping to add both from a kind of, um, uh, set of features that we're going to support and from the kinds of things that we're going to be able to automate. I mean, the other thing that's nice about being able to put these things in, in, uh, one system is that we're trying to build stuff where we can actually like predict what kind of memory uses you're going to need downstream to help you got to help guide you as to what kind of cluster you should allocate. And, and, how things should be cached, just take some of that out of the hands of the software engineer to make that part easier. And we do support something called JNI, which allows you to kind of plug in existing components. So if you have stuff that you already have built and want to use it in this kind of more general framework, you can kind of just plug it in. So that's uh...
0: so uh, at this point, uh, the, pro- the project is focused on what, uh, uh, adding more of these primitives or uh, improving improving results of the existing pipeline?
1: Well, now that we have software, we're hoping people are going to start using it. I think that the, there are a couple parts that, that are um, interesting to me. So I think once you put these things together, now the question is how can you start actually optimizing these things together? So how can we actually choose between components and actually tune parameters in some kind of harmonious way? That's,
0: I think, a, a nice feature that we're hoping to have. you still don't want to use the word automate.
1: No, that part, that part I'm okay with automating. I think parts can be automated, but let's just put it, I think sometimes when people ask for automation of machine learning, what they want is they say, here, here's some raw data. Uh, I want you to build me the best classifier in the universe. Come back next week. Right. right. I, I don't think we can do that. I mean, I think there are parts of these things that we can automate. And I think that's always where the, that's the interesting part of systems research, finding the patterns that are repeated, that we kind of take out of the, um, that, that we can remove from uh, the, the hands of the programmer unless they really want to kind of dive in and do it themselves.
0: Um, but, if it, but if it's some, it, let's say it's a, it's a problem you've seen before, like, for example, image classification, right? So someone comes to you, here's some raw data, build me a classifier. Yeah. Right? I mean, at some point, you can just do that automatically, right? No? Well, so, I mean, if I've labeled data, I mean, so here's some labeled data, build me a classifier using this pipeline.
1: I guess at, at that point, if they already have the pipeline, what's the automatic part?
0: No, 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 no pipeline, raw data. Yeah, raw data, and then uh, uh, give me a classifier. Y- and then the pipeline gets built in between.
1: Oh yeah, we do not. I, no, I, again, I don't think we know how to do that. I don't think anybody knows how to do that, honestly. Okay, that's. I think I don't. I think that's almost asking too much. I, mean, I, I I feel like that's the part where sometimes machine learning tries to overpromise. Right. Um, I don't think it's the case that you give me some unstructured database that somehow you acquired, whether it's like some random medical records or, uh, it's like some, some kind of data or anything. I mean, I I don't understand without domain expertise, going from that kind of raw and structured data, I think you're just, um, you just hand that to somebody. Right. right, right. We're not going to know what to do. You need to actually kind of bring in, like, what do you know about the data? What should we try to be? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess, I guess I kind of, uh, yeah, I oversold it, but basically for example, if if it's an image classification test, and you have a little bit of domain expertise about image classification, then you can build it fast, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, let, let me give you a, a clear example of what we're hoping we're, we're going to be able to do. We haven't done this demonstration. If someone out there is listening and loves computer vision and wants to uh, collaborate, you know, we can maybe figure out a way to do so. Um, a lot of times in computer vision, there are benchmarks. I mean, I'm not going to just single about computer vision. This is also true in speech, this is also true right. in text. Right. There are benchmarks. And you get thousands of papers written about the same benchmarks. And it's completely impossible to tell how people are comparing. They'd say, I, algorithm A is better than algorithm B. But you don't actually get to see how exactly they're running algorithm A, or on what uh, computing substrate they're running algorithm A, or like what they did to the default parameters in algorithm B. It's very hard to actually make those comparisons and make them reproducible. Right. So then what will come along after a bunch of this is someone will try to reproduce all the results. And we'll write a survey paper comparing a bunch of results. For example, there's a great paper I was just looking at the other day on like the state of the art in pedestrian detection, and there are, they they look at 50 different algorithms. Um, there are lots of groups that seem to that, that really try to focus on the nitty gritty details. There's another there's a great paper by some folks at Oxford that try to look at all the different details in implementations um, for for image classification. And so, what we'd like to be able to do is have this framework where you can actually do those kinds of um, comparisons. Oh wow, accurately. that's great effortlessly. So the idea being that if all I'm doing is changing the second node in this pipeline, I should be able to do that. I should be able to actually, um, uh, spit up a job that tries out a hundred different things, intelligently figure out how actually to run those hundred different things, um, in a minimal amount of time. Um, and actually give you a report that tries to lead us to at least give some insight into how these different things perform and where their sensitivities lie. That's really, I think what we, that's really where we're hoping to go with this.
0: And then of course the practical implication is then you have a system where you can get, you can come up with the best pipeline and some. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. That's a hard, that's a
1: hard problem. Uh, but it's something definitely that that's something I think we can do. That's a, Um, or like something we really would like to be able do. In.
0: Right. Right. And, uh, so the, uh, currently right now, I think Keystone ML as you mentioned ships with some example pipelines for images, speech and text. And, uh, that's just because that's what you guys started with, right? And then over time, as you have more and more components, then it'll be easy for people to try it on, on uh, many uh, different types of situations. and data. That's sets. right.
1: I think one of the hardest things in machine learning when you try to ship these things, is it's really important to have data sets and kind of algorithms that you're comparing yourself to that are plausible. And so some of the harder part is that um, you know we're doing stuff on relatively public data sets. And so if you had, I don't know all of them. So it'd be good if, everybody, you know, if there was a good repository of, of data sets that were um, that were kind of uh, that kind of uh, aligned with common use patterns I think we'd have a we so, be able to use those kind of build stuff on top of that I think it would it'd be great to add more examples of that flavor
0: So the other thing about this I guess the way you're describing it since since a person using Keystone can in can uh, uh, create a pipeline from scratch then they will understand what's happening in each, each step of this pipeline, right? I mean, granted each uh, step, uh, some of the steps might still be a black box. Like, for example, the last step might be an SVM and that's a black box.
1: That one's pretty, that's a simple black box. I think the harder ones are some of the featureizers that people use are to um, be very black box. Um, like It took me a very long time to appreciate what's going on inside something called SIFT, right. which is a popular thing. In,
0: um, but at least at some level, you know. Okay, at this step I'm doing six. Next step I'm doing this. Yes. And so on and so forth, right? That's right. Um, so you. So that means. Oh, so I see. So that's why at some at some point, if you know a lot about the pipeline steps in detail, then you can probably start guessing ways of optimizing the entire. Pipeline. That's
1: right. I mean, so there's two reasons to optimize here. One way to reason to optimize. Would be to tune parameters to get better um, classification performance or segmentation performance, or whatever task you're trying and to do. And that
0: could be a that could be a hard optimization problem right there.
1: Right, that could be, and they typically are. But there are at least heuristics we can wrap on top that are not bad. That might buy you twenty percent. Maybe that's all you need a little, little boost, boost, and improvement. The other thing that we're hoping to be able to do are systems optimizations, meaning that we don't, you know, we don't want you to have to load a thousand node cluster because yeah. you made an incorrect decision in caching so that we'd like to be able to actually make these things where we can smartly allocate um, um, memory and other resources to be able to run on kind of more compact clusters more quickly. So there are many axes in which we're hoping to be able to optimize.
0: So I ran into both Shivaram and Evan, the, a couple of the students working on this. Uh, Two leads, let's be clear. those yeah, guys okay.
1: are, Without those guys, there's nothing, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a few days ago at the Spark Summit, and they told me that you were, at, in fact, doing uh, all sorts of... Uh, tuning and optimization on Amazon. (laughs) Me, me personally.
1: Yes. Yeah, they ratted me out. I know. Yeah, I I am. I am. It's actually really fun. I mean, that was part of the, honestly, that's like most of the motivation for this project was entirely selfish. Um, I, I feel like we reached a weird stage in machine learning. Um, for a long time, basically it was okay to work with data sets that would have tens of thousands of examples. Right. I, I, I think that for up until. I mean, I still see papers where people are comparing things on some data set that's called MNIST, which is a 20-year-old data set that has been overfit to death and right. has 60,000 digit examples, and it's very small. Right. Um, and the overhead required to do that is very low. You could do that on a laptop. You could do that on a MacBook Air. Right. Uh, and you could, like, tool around with stuff and, and, and do things. But if you wanted to work on a kind of more, um, you know, a kind of some of these larger data sets that people are putting out, whether they'd be web crawls, whether they would be these huge... Uh, data sets of Flickr images where they'd be these long recordings of speech. Um, At that point, you can't do it on your laptop anymore. And you find that the things that like you labor for months over building something that's going to scale onto some reasonable cluster. And then you try something that worked really well on a small data set and it doesn't work at all on the big data set. And there's a gap. So there's this gap now. And so part of the motivation here was to say, can we build something so that people like me, uh, who, who aren't necessarily um, hardware wizards um, can, can actually do prototyping and, and try out these large-scale experiments and really try to probe at what actually is happening in this very large data regime. Um,
0: and actually, uh, I mean, the other, the other thing that's happened is because you guys built it on top of Spark, uh, Spark users could just jump in and use this. I mean, I've installed it. I've started running some of the pipelines uh, it's all in spark. It's, uh, it's very easy to run. If you already Absolutely. know how to use spark,
1: you know, how use spark is very easy to run. Uh, honestly, I don't really know how
0: to use spark and
1: I find it very easy to run, uh, which is great. It's a little bit, sa- I mean, I feel like the, the, the way that Evan tailored the language, it's, well, it's still in Scala. Um, and we're still improving it. You, you can kind of get in and start to do things, uh, knowing almost no Scala and, um, and, and boot up these large clusters and, um, um, have with EC2 and get some really nice results. Very I, did
0: th- I did tell Evan, though, when I ran into him, you guys still need to work on your documentation. And then he said, I know, I know, but we need to write our paper first.
1: Oh, come on, really? Grad <laughs> students, man. Listen to these guys. Listen to these guys. We have the wrong incentive models, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole oh. other podcast, man. Where we I know. Just, I know. Just, reach a, just outreach to grad students saying, like, you know, right, there's something wrong right now where everybody writes so many papers. And like every, then there's a paper deadline in computer science every two weeks. Right, so it's, tight,
0: it's tied to these conferences, right? It's tied to these conferences, man. And I just feel like it would be cool if
1: somebody could come up with a mechanism of reward that disincentivized
0: writing a trillion papers. Right, right. I don't know how to do this. That's hard. That's like that's like reinventing academia, right there. Oh man, I know. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Ben, this has been great, and. Uh, like I said, keep working on Keystone because uh, there's a lot of uh, people using Spark, and uh, I think a lot of them will uh, find, a lot of, uh, uh, find a lot of usage out of Keystone as it continues to improve and it continues to add components and primitives.
1: I really hope so, man. I'm excited about it.
0: Yeah. All right. Th- thank you. Thank you so much. If you want to keep up with what Ben is doing, you can follow at on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through Stitcher or iTunes or tunein.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.